might remember that Jesus told a story one time about a king who wanted to settle accounts with those who were in debt to him. Now, one guy owed the king $100,000, we'll say. The king ordered him to pay his debt, but the guy couldn't pay, so he ordered him to be sold into slavery along with his wife and children. Even though that sounds harsh, that would be the king's right because this guy is in massive debt to him. The guy fell on his knees before the king and begged him, have patience with me, I will repay you everything. Jesus said, out of pity for the man, the king released him and, quote, forgave him all his debt. Jesus continues to tell the story and says that that same guy went out and he found a co-worker of his who owed him a thousand dollars. A thousand dollars and he demanded that his co-worker pay him the money that he owed him. And in the same way, the guy said, I can't pay you the money that I owed you. And so he fell on his knees and, and he begged the guy. Have patience with me. I will repay you. But the guy seized his co-worker and began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. The guy refused to let his co-worker go, had him arrested by the authorities, and thrown into prison until his debt was paid off. What do you think about that guy? Well, the Bible tells us that that is what Christians are like. When we do not treat others with the same grace that God has treated us. Especially when we do not treat the non-Christians around us with the same forgiving grace that God has treated us. Friends, too often I'm afraid that we find ourselves with our figurative hands around the neck of the non-Christians in government over us or the non-Christians who live and work around us, despising them because they're foolish and disobedient. Avoiding them because they live enslaved to their sinful passions and pleasures. Speaking to them harshly or speaking about them with evil behind their backs. And we might even feel justified in our actions because of our righteous indignation against them for living in rejection to God. But we've forgotten something very important, haven't we? We have forgotten that we ourselves once were the same. And God did not treat us as we deserved. But instead, God treated us according to his mercy 
and according to his grace. And now, our God, our gracious Savior and King calls us Christians to treat the non-Christians over us and around us the same way that he has treated us. That's the point of our sermon text this morning. My prayer is that we will all remember our salvation so that we treat non-Christians the same way that God has treated us. Our sermon text is found in Titus chapter 3. Please take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Our specific sermon text is verse 4 through 7, but we're going to read 1 through 8 for the context. Titus 3, this is God's word. Verse 1, remind them, meaning Christians, the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. That's the word of the Lord. Amen. Last week, we studied the first part of that text, verses 1 through 3. Paul gave four important reminders for Christians as we live in a very non-Christian world. Do you remember that? Number one, remember your calling before and after this text. Um, We're called to be zealous and devoted to good works. Remember, Christians, your calling. Number two, remember your responsibilities. Look there in verse one. We're to be good citizens, even under a non-Christian government. And we are to be gracious people. Remember your responsibilities in verse one and two. And then in verse three, remember your former condition. We ourselves were once were just like them. 
And then, verse 4, that great but God statement. But, even though you had that former condition, even though you were foolish and disobedient and enslaved, even though you were in the death spiral of human depravity, God saved us. Remember your salvation. We touched on that last week, but I told you then, and I'll tell you again now, we're going to pick it up this week because it's so rich. This morning we're studying verse 4 through 7 where Paul encourages us to remember our salvation so that we want to keep this in the text. Verse 4 through 7, so that we treat the non-Christians in authority over us, verse 1, and the non-Christians around us, verse 2, the way God treated us when we were just like them, verse 3. This morning we're studying verse 4 through 7. It's one sentence, one, one very thick, very God-glorifying sentence that explains God's work to save us. What God did to save us, rescue us from our former condition. Verse 4 through 7 explains when God saved us, how God saved us, and why God saved us. Those are the three points of our sermon this morning. Verse 4, when God saved us. Verse 5 and 6, how God saved us. Verse 7, why God saved us. And our sermon text emphasizes that salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Now, does that mean that we have no part at all? No. We respond to God's work to save us. But here's the key. Taught here in this text and multiple other places in Scripture. If God had not worked in us, we would not respond to him. And that means that salvation is all of God. And therefore, God gets all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. All glory belongs to God forever and ever. So in our sermon text, verse 4 and 5, we see the first point. Paul tells us when God saved us. Number one, remember, God saved us when we were still sinners. God saved us when we were still sinners. Look there in verse 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God saved us when we were still in our former condition, just like they are right now. And what he does here is he uses two Greco-Roman cultural terms to explain the gospel. He kind of snatches some 
some uh, iconic phrases out of the Greco-Roman world, and he applies them to the gospel, just like if we were to take some modern terminology and flip it on its head to explain good theology. This phrase, goodness and loving kindness, Greek scholar George Knight explains that this phrase frequently occurs in extra-biblical literature in reference to the ideal virtue of rulers and the Roman gods in relationship to their subject. So an ideal emperor was an emperor marked by goodness and loving kindness. An ideal god, uh, one of the Greek or Roman gods, was, was, a, uh, was marked by goodness and loving kindness. And then Paul takes the word appeared which we've already discussed is the word epiphany, which is not just a bright idea, but an epiphany describes the arrival of the emperor or the arrival of this Roman deity in a display of power. So now when we read this and we say, here we are in our former condition, foolish, enslaved in the death spiral of the chaos of hatred against one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, Paul says, God has appeared in a divine display of goodness and loving kindness. But wait a minute. Toward whom? Toward those who are his enemies. Now what would the Roman emperor do to his enemies? What would the Greek God do to his enemies? But our God? What does he do to those of us who used to be the enemies of God while we were still enemies? God appeared in goodness and loving kindness to rescue us. Verse 3 reminds us that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient against God, actively being led astray on paths of deception and destruction, enslaved by our own passions and pleasures, wasting our life like hamsters, stuck in a wheel, stewing about others because of what they have that we want, living in the chaos of reciprocal hated. And what should have happened to those people in that situation? Well, you tell me, what would a just and holy king do to those who rebel against his law and treat others in his kingdom despicably? They deserve judgment. And we do, friends. But good news. If you sit here today as a Christian, God did not give you what you deserve. Instead, God gave you grace and mercy God did not treat you the way you treated him, but instead, God appeared in goodness and loving kindness. Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that, what? 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For, Romans 5, you ready? If, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When did the goodness and loving uh, kindness of God appear? It appeared when Jesus Christ, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. 2 Timothy chapter 1. God's grace has been manifest through the epiphany, the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God has appeared not to his friends, but to his enemies in a display of saving power. And Paul emphasizes that. Look what he says. When the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us not, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You would expect that God would give grace for grace. You would expect that God would give favor for goodness. But he did not give us his favor because of anything that we did. What we did is listed in verse 3. Those are our works. But God saved us not because of our good works, which we did in the past or are doing in the present. See, God does not save people on the basis of our faithfulness to him or our sincerity or our devotion to our religion. God does not save people because their good works outweigh their bad works. God does not save people because they're basically good people who try to live by the Ten Commandments. Or in the words of Paul here, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. And by the way, those are the works that the false teachers are going around teaching in chapter 1. Do you remember that? That we attain God's favor and purity by keeping the Old Testament law. There is simply no contribution on our part to our salvation. It's, it's what's in God that saves us, not what's in us. And so Paul flips the coin over and emphasizes that in the middle of verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to, on the basis of his own mercy. And I love the word own there, don't you? It really makes it personal. It's, it's not like God said, well, there's this thing over here called mercy and I need to operate according to it. No, this is his own mercy. This is what fills him. Mercy is, is compassion that does not give someone what is deserved. And God did not give us what we deserved for our pride and our disobedience and our hatred toward others. If you're a Christian here today, you are the object of God's mercy instead of the object of his wrath. How did God do that? 
Well, because he poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus, so that there's nothing left for us who are in Christ by faith through grace. Psalm 103, verse 8 through 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us his people, according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Question, do you fear God? Or do you count yourself wise, disobey his law, live for passion and pleasure, despise others? That's all of us in our natural sinful condition. But God, but God, because of his mercy, appeared to us in a beautiful display of saving power. That's when we're saved. Number two, how? How are we saved? Number two, remember. Paul says, I want you to remember that God saved us by, by changing our former condition into a completely new condition, by changing our former condition into a new condition, verse five through the beginning of verse seven. He saved us by, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, and then he continues. There's three explanations there of how God saved us. Number one, he saved us by the washing of regeneration. Number two, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And number three, by declaring us justified by his grace. What God does is he changes our former condition. Now, let's just take a moment to remind ourselves, not just of verse three that describes our former condition, but let's go back to one of my favorite paradigms to understand humanity apart from God. There we were in the Garden of Eden, in our father Adam and our mother Eve. 
They were holy. They enjoyed perfect fellowship with God until they sinned. And the moment they sinned, three things happened that caused all of the sons of Adam and all of the the daughters of Eve to be born sinners. No longer born holy and right with God. We're born outside the garden. We're born under the curse of sin and death. Here's the three things that happened. And I'm choosing these three things because they match what God does to change our former condition into our new condition. The first thing that happened was that they were banished from God's presence. Why? Because they're now defiled. And sin cannot be in the presence of God. So they were kicked out of the garden. They were separated and banished from the presence of God because they were defiled by sin. Number two, they were outside of the garden under the curse. And that curse included depravity which corrupted every fiber of their being. Human depravity does not mean that we sin as much or as badly as we can. It means that sin has affected us and made us as bad off as we can be because we are now under the curse of death. And what sin does is it takes the image of God in which we were made and it corrupts it. It warps the image of God in us. So they're banished from his presence because they're defiled by sin. They're under the curse of depravity, which corrupts God's image in us. And then number three, they are condemned to death because of their sin. Condemned to death. So what God does here in verse 5 through the beginning of 7 is he changes our former condition into a completely new condition. And these three things that God does, how does God save us? God gives us a new birth that makes us clean before him again. God renews his image in us through his Holy Spirit. And then God declares us justified by grace not by our works. Let's just take those three things one at a time. First of all, how does God save us? First, God gives us a new birth that makes us clean before him again. God gives us a new birth that makes us clean before him again. Verse 5, by the washing of regeneration. What does it mean to be to have a washing of regeneration? The key word there is not washing, it's regeneration. The regeneration washes us. It's a washing that is involved with the regeneration, and therefore the regeneration is the main thing that washes us. So what is regeneration? Well, uh, the Greek word means a new genesis. It it means a new beginning, a new birth. 
So what God does, not necessarily in order, but these are three things that God does to save us, three massive things that changes our former condition. What God does is he gives us a new birth. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to the very religious teacher named, named Nicodemus? And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And we all snicker. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water, And the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. You must have a new genesis, a rebirth. A spiritual birth. And that's what God does to save us. He changes us by giving us a new birth. And what does that new birth do? By the washing of regeneration. That new birth causes us to be washed. The word wash just means to wash, like take a bath, like it assumes, it's predicated on the fact that we are that we are sinners and that we are defiled and dirty before God. And so there's beautiful imagery, I'm sorry. There's beautiful imagery in the scriptures that talk about the work of God to wash us. One of those most beautiful images is in the relationship of Jesus and his bride in marriage. Listen to this. This is great. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, those who have been banished from the presence of God because we have been defiled from sin have to be washed. We have to have a new birth so that we can be brought back into and presented as the bride of Christ back into the presence of God so that we can live with him forever. God saves us by giving us a spiritual birth that makes us clean before him. Number two, how does God save us? By the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Different word, not regeneration, but now renewal. 
of the Holy Spirit. So, obviously, this is something that the Holy Spirit does. What does the Holy Spirit do? He renews us. Renews what? Well, the language of the New Testament tells us that what the Holy Spirit is renewing is the image of God in us. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. We have put on the new self, ready, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. So just as sin has warped the image of God in us, one of the things that God does to save us is he renews his image in us through his Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us new people. And notice that this happens when, verse 6, the Spirit is poured out on us. And when is the Holy Spirit poured out on us? Well, go to some churches and they'll tell you that the Holy Spirit is poured out on you when you become mature. Other churches will tell you that the Holy Spirit is poured out on you when you have a a gift or or when, when you have a certain experience or when you go to a certain place. It's not what the Bible says. Read Titus chapter 3. When is the Holy Spirit poured out on us? Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Holy Spirit is poured out on us when Jesus saves us. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit was prophesied in Joel chapter 2. It shall come to pass that afterwards I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And that was fulfilled Peter even referenced this in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Acts chapter 2 is when this was fulfilled. Jesus has poured out this that you are seeing and hearing today. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes at salvation and it comes richly. God pours out his spirit in abundance, lavishly. And with that spirit, we receive a wealth of riches. Listen, the New Testament teaches, and we don't have time to go into this today, but let's study our Bibles together sometime, and we'll find out that the New New Testament uh, teaches that all Christians are filled with, baptized in, indwelled by, and sealed with the Holy Spirit at salvation. It's not a second blessing. It's not a mark of maturity. We don't get more of the Spirit in maturity. He gets more of us. He certainly controls more of us. We don't get more of him. And what is one of the primary works of this spirit? A lifetime here on earth of making and remaking us back into the image of God, specifically remaking the image of Christ in us so that we don't look like our father Adam anymore, but we look like we are in Christ. Christ. 
That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in you day by day. And he's using good things and suffering to do it. He's using people you love and people that you don't get along with to make you into the image of Christ. He's even using me. Imagine that. God renews his image, which has been warped by sin. He renews his image in us through his spirit. That's how God saves us. And number three, the result of this. Now, this is a little bit cumbersome here in the English. So let's keep looking here. Verse seven. So that which sets up the statement of why God saved us. That's the next point. Hold on to that for a second. So that, but then he drops back with a verb and he says, so that being, being in a new state, not what you formerly were, but now this new state of being. And what is this new state of being? Justified. No longer condemned in Adam. No longer banished from the presence of God. No longer warped in the image of God. But now justified. And not because of your works. By grace. We are declared righteous. Like a king who declares your debt is forgiven. It's done. And it's not because you paid him pennies on the dollar. No, it was a gift you know that's the essence of the word grace? It's just the word gift? So, so we could read that. So that being justified by God's gift. We're declared, we're acquitted of our crimes, declared righteous, pronounced forgiven on the basis of grace. Not earned, not even deserved, not in the least part. We see who we were in verse 3. That's why I love, I love that song that Zach led us in a moment ago. Let us love and sing and wonder. And when we get to about that last verse, it's, I don't know, next to last verse, when it says, let us wonder grace and justice. Join to point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Secured, friends, by grace. Bestowed by grace. You didn't work to earn it. You don't work to keep it. Salvation is by grace through the work of God in Christ from beginning to end. Now, before I leave this point, the washing, look, look there at uh, this. How does God save us? Look at verse 5 and 6. The washing of a new birth that renews the image of God in us and restores us to a state of righteousness by grace. Justification. This is rooted in the Old Testament. This is not just New Testament Christianity. This is, this is the Old Testament promise of God 
to fulfill his covenant of grace with all of his people in all time and in all places. Ezekiel chapter 36, if you'd want, just take a moment to to turn there. Ezekiel chapter 36. Paul knows his Old Testament well, and he's reaching back to Ezekiel 36, and he is showing the promise of God to do these things. Ezekiel 36, look at 22. Not for your sake, but for my name. God says, I'm going to make myself famous by being gracious. Verse 23, for the purpose, what? So that the nations, those are the non-Christians above us and around us, so that the nations might know my name. Verse 24, I'm going to take you from your former condition. Verse 25, I begin reading. I will, notice these words, sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will. By the way, have you noticed that this is I will, I will, I will. Will. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Verse 28, the result, you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Isn't that beautiful? That's just the Old Testament version of Titus 3, 4 through 7. When did God save us? How did God save us? Well, God saved us when we were sinners, and God saved us by changing our former condition into a completely new condition. And now number three, why? Why? You see the beginning of verse 7, so that, that so that sets up the why, the purpose. So that being justified by his grace, this new state that we've been brought into, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Life. Remember, Paul says, God saved us so that we might live here and now as heirs who have hope of eternal life. Instead of being trapped in the downward spiral of human depravity, now we become heirs. Heirs of God. Co-heirs with Jesus. Here's the gospel. We do not get what we deserve. We get everything that Jesus deserved. That's amazing. That's head-shaking, draw-dropping, amazing. It really is.
An heir is a son who receives an inheritance. And in this case, the inheritance is what? Eternal life. And now what we do is we live in the hope of. Now, the hope of eternal life means that it's not fully realized yet. If if you're hoping in something, that means that you're still on this side of it. You expect it. It's been promised. And in this case, promised by God. And we know that God keeps his promises. Amen? Yeah. So God promised it. And now we're expecting it, but it's not fully realized. We've gotten a taste of it. We can feel the eternal life, the changes in our heart. We feel the shalom of the garden beginning to blossom inside of us. We're experiencing true joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. We're experiencing righteousness that is alien to us, even here in the non-Christian, unrighteous world, living in this very, very sin depraved body, we're, we're beginning to feel peace, even in the midst of the storm that is this life. But it's not consummated yet. It's not complete. We're still hoping. We're still looking forward to this. So we live. Remember, God saved us so that we might live here and now as if we really do have eternal life. And friends, that changes your life. You don't live for here and now anymore. Oh, oh. And it's not, and it's not that you, well, I don't care about this place. What are you talking about? God put us on mission. He called us here. In fact, we care more about our neighbors than we ever have before because we're, we want them to be heirs of the hope of eternal life too. Talk about wanting your kids to be happy and healthy. I want my kids to be happy and healthy for eternity. And so I'm going to live like an heir, like I really have it right now. So what hope, really, just think about it. I'm going to leave you with this. What hope does eternal life really give you on an everyday basis? I suggested the future promise of God motivates present perseverance. We're going to endure to the end. We are going to follow Jesus and keep following Jesus, and we're going to hold on to him, and we are going to grab a hold of his veins ankles, and with everything in us, we're going to follow Jesus, knowing for sure that it's not up to us. We hold on to him because he holds us fast. The future promise of God motivates present obedience. We don't toy with sin anymore, friends. We've been saved from it. We don't fall back into our old life. Why? Because that's not who we are anymore. We were once, but not now. We're heirs. We're sons of God. We've been adopted. Not because of who we are, but because of God's grace and mercy. We've been adopted by God. God did this, and we live like sons of God on earth. Future promise of God motivates present joy. It's easy to be joyful when you're with your grandchildren. It's easy to be joyful when everything's been going okay. But when you have the hope of eternal life, 
You can even be joyful in the midst of tremendous suffering. You just ask some of the sweet saints around you who have dealt with cancer and death and financial ruin and job loss. And one of the things that fuels our joy is to remember this is not all there is. Paul encourages us to remember our salvation so that, so that we'll treat non-Christians with grace just like God treated us when we were non-Christians. So that we'll live as new people. So that we will live with perseverance and obedience and joy in light of our inheritance of eternal life. Soli Dea Gloria, friends. Let's pray. God, we bow our heads and our hearts before you and those of us who are Christians. We thank you that you saved us. You broke into our world and rescued us from what we deserved by your mercy and grace. You did all the work. It was nothing in us. We praise you for your mercy and grace. And now I pray two things. Number one, that you would fuel us with this remembrance to live with grace to display your glory and gospel and grace to everyone around us so that you will continue your purposes of redemption. You might even use us. But I pray one more thing. I pray that if there's someone here who's listening to this text explained, I pray if they are not a Christian, they would see that they're still in their former condition. No hope except that you would save them. And I pray that you would open their eyes and that you would draw them to Jesus so that they would respond in repentance and faith. We thank you in Jesus' name.